Uh, that song that we just sang, Oceans. It's the perfect opening for what I want to talk with you about today. And the question that I have for you as we dive in is, what is it that you are building your life on? Uh, what is the foundation of your life? What is the thing that, that grounds you? What is the thing that, that you look to when things get hard? And then how do you know if you're actually building your life on that or not? Because that song, Oceans, was about the waves coming, about suffering coming upon us, and us as followers of Jesus keeping our eyes fixed on him. In Orange County, I think we have a particular challenge, a particular challenge when it comes to keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. And so I give you everything, not everything, a symbol of everything that is wrong with Western culture. Because it didn't matter if it was good. It didn't matter if it was good for you. It was beautiful on Instagram. And so people would go out and chase it down and try and find it. And if one Starbucks was out of it, they went to another. And people searched out this thing and they just had to have it. And I'm not saying that there's anything particularly wrong with getting your entire allotment of sugar for a week in one sitting. I guess it made me think of all the beautiful pictures I saw of people this week as they were going out on spring break. Uh, this past week was spring break at St. John's. I saw pictures of people skiing, pictures of people at the beach, pictures of people doing all kinds of great and fun things. And I don't want you to mishear me here because I don't want to get a message from Pastor Tim saying, Nathan said that these things are bad. No, 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 no. They are not bad. What is bad is when we make our life about chasing after these things. And Friday I was playing with my daughter in the park and talking to another gentleman. And as we looked out, we're down in San Clemente, looked out at the ocean, playing on the park, he said to me, this is not how most of the world lives. In Orange County, we live in a way that most of the world does not live. We have the perfect weather. We have the best stuff. We have the best things that are within our reach, whether it's the beach or the mountains. We can see it and enjoy it and enjoy what God has given us. And it is great to enjoy the things that God has given us. But what our culture does, because of things like Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and this pressure that we feel around us, is this pressure to pursue the best things in life, and this idea, this idea that that is what life is about. And as I was talking with my wife about this this past week, I thought I came up with a term, blissed out. Turns out, I'm not that smart, and it actually is a term. I didn't invent anything. Blissed out. I looked it up. It's really there, and it's to reach a state of perfect, perfect happiness typically so as to be oblivious to everything else. And there's nothing wrong with that. I sat in my, my office this past week with a couple that was getting married, and they were totally blissed out. Totally. And it was awesome. The problem comes when our lives become about pursuing that state. Because usually when we get into a, a focus where we're pursuing that kind of a thing, we're not paying attention to what's going on in our lives. 
We're hiding from the other things that are going on in our lives, the other things that we need to deal with. And so that brings us to the text for today. Because suffering is going to come, right? We live in a broken world. Bad things are going to happen to us, and we cannot avoid them. And so here's a picture of suffering that happens in the lives of the disciples, and I think it is the most amazing story. Because what happens when suffering comes in our lives is our foundations can crumble. The things that we build our lives upon, if they are not strong enough, they will fail. But here we read from Acts chapter 5, verses 27 and following. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. We have gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors Raise Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus appeared claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed. And it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged, and then ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And what I want you to notice there is it kind of gets skipped over, read over in the text. They get flogged. That's a lot of suffering. That is not good. That's what they did to Jesus. That's whipping them so pieces of flesh come off their backs. And what do they do? They rejoice. And I don't know about any of you guys, but when I suffer, I generally take an assessment of what I have done and think about whether or not I'm going to do it again. And yet, in the midst of suffering, they rejoice. And I see in these disciples something that is 
infinitely beautiful and infinitely simple, and that in the presence of suffering, instead of getting weak, instead of crumbling, instead of falling apart, they double down. They do it twice as much. They never stop doing the thing that got them in trouble. They, they go all the more about doing the task that they are supposed to do. They live into their calling all the more. And so the question is, what is, what is going on in their hearts and their minds Because what I I know is this, there is no way to get through life unless you can get through suffering. And there's no way to get through suffering unless you have a, a living hope, something that is stronger, that can carry you through the suffering. Because this is not how people usually respond to suffering. Many of you read this book, Viktor Frankl. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? This is a book that most of us probably read in high school, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl, if you don't know, uh, was a psychotherapist, and he was in Auschwitz. And he couldn't stop being a scientist while he was in Auschwitz, and so he was, was incredibly astounded by watching the way that people suffered and how they dealt with suffer. And he analyzed, how are people responding to suffering? And what are they doing as a way to respond to suffering in their lives? And what he discovered... What he found as he looked around, he saw that people generally responded to to suffering in in one of three ways. He he saw that people most of the time became brutal. They became violent. They became ugly. They became like their captors in order to survive. Uh, Perfectly normal, loving, kind, generous people became animals and would trample over others in order to ensure their own survival. Second thing that he saw happen was people would give up hope. And he writes these words here that I'd like to share from you from in his book. He says, The symptoms of giving up hope were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with prisoners refusing one morning to get dressed or wash or go out to the playgrounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. They just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought on by illness, they refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help themselves. They simply gave up. There they remained, and nothing bothered them anymore. The other way that sometimes people survived was they'd say, if I just hold on, if I just hold on, if I, just, if I can just survive, if I can just grit my teeth, this kind of sounds like what Germans kind of do sometimes. We as stubborn people grit our teeth and say, I'm going to make it through no matter what it takes. I'm going to be tough. And so that's what some of them would do. They'd become tough and they'd say, if I can just survive, I can get my hopes back. I can get all the things that I lost back and my life can once again be meaningful and full. I can get my health and my, my family. I can get my professional achievement and my wealth and my position in society back. And then life will be meaningful. And Viktor Frankl said those were the hardest people to watch. Because after our liberation, after their day of their dreams came true, came. These people were often worse off 
because they'd sink into depression. Some of them committed suicide because they realized that these dreams were not the thing that they were longing for, that they were hoping for. So he said there's a fourth group. A fourth group, and he had this to say about them. He said, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that suffering and even death cannot destroy. And he'd say to his friends, he'd say, remember. Remember that someone is looking down on you from heaven. A friend, a spouse, or even God. You must not disappoint them. And what he said is that our future and our preferred for our hope for a future, the thing that we are hanging on to, determines how we face our now, how we live in the present. And what he realized as he studied this is if we attach our ultimate hope to any finite thing, it is going to disappoint us because suffering is going to come. And what is suffering but the stripping away of those finite things that we hold on to, that we hope in? And I know what you're thinking. Okay, this is kind of dark. I'm never going to be in a concentration camp. So what does this have to do with my present life and the things that I may face day to day? What is the concentration camp but the concentration of everything that we as people will eventually lose? Eventually, we're going to lose all of those things. And I remember watching one of my friends as he lost kind of his identity, who he was, and I watched him absolutely crumble because that was who he was. And when he lost that, everything fell apart. There's no way to make it through life unless you can make it through suffering. And there's no way to make it through suffering unless you have a living hope. In First Peter, Peter articulates what's going on in the hearts and the minds of the disciple and the thing that we have to follow and hang on to as Jesus' followers. From First Peter, beginning at the third of chapter one, beginning at verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. A hope that cannot die, a hope that cannot fail uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But what is that living hope? And so we explore into the text, what does he say this living hope is? He says, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In other words, it's something that, that can't spoil or fade away. And he says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And when he says kept, he means that it is guarded, that it is protected, that it can't be taken from you or by you, that God is keeping it for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power into the day of the coming of salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. And so that living hope is going to be revealed at the end when the last day comes. And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
And there it is. That is what our living hope is. Praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him, now you believe in him and you are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what's in Peter's heart. That's what's in Peter's mind. That is what enables Peter and the disciples to face that type of suffering and remain buoyant, remain joyous in spite of suffering. But I I want you to notice something else here. And this kind of thing is totally off the radar of most people. It it totally is beyond what anybody would think. Let's go to verse 6, which uh, we have on the screen for you here. And you notice what he says. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trial. Both of those things are present tense. They're both present tense. It's not like you've suffered in the past and now you're going to have joy. You have joy now and you're going to suffer in the future. Or that you're holding on to some joy that's coming in the future. It's that they are both now. What is that joy about? It means it is not tied to our circumstance. So that we can experience both joy and sorrow at the same time. And what he's saying here is that the joy enables you to deal with the sorrow that you face. Because this thing is also off the radar for most Christians. Because what is most Christians' response to suffering? What is the the popular response that's out there in culture if a Christian is suffering? Well, I'm suffering, but I'm just praising Jesus. Everything's going to be okay because Jesus has got it. No, this is real joy and real sorrow. Because what does culture usually do? What are our usual responses when suffering comes? We can get angry, right? When suffering comes, we get angry at the circumstance. We get angry at the people around us. We get angry at God. We can become indifferent, pretend like it doesn't matter. Or we can do the thing that our culture is currently telling us to do, and that is seek after pleasure and excitement in order to numb the pain. Because what happens to us if we don't do that? We harden our hearts, and we can slip into those other responses of becoming brutal or giving up hope or just trying to survive. But what Peter is saying to us is that because of the joy held out before us, the thing that you and I can hold on to, the hope that we have, we can face the sorrow in our lives, the suffering that comes upon us. Instead of being overwhelmed by that suffering, it helps our hearts to grow. It makes our hearts bigger. And when we don't just endure, we get a bigger heart, a bigger life, and it softens us. And in verse 7, we see that it, it makes the joy greater. We have greater joy because of the suffering in our lives, because it gives us the hope. It helps us to grab onto Jesus more. 
It gives us our joy because it draws us into him deeper. Our suffering as followers of Jesus pushes him to us. Helps us to grab onto him more. So what does this look like in our lives? What does this look like in our lives? How do we know if this is happening within us? If God is taking our sorrow and turning it into joy? What are your daydreams? What are the things that you look to that you dream about in your life? Those things tell you who you are and what you are living for. If you don't think that sorrow can be turned into joy, I encourage you to think about the nail marks in Jesus' hands. Those nails were the end of everything for the disciples. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, everything that they'd hoped for, everything that they had built their life on was coming to nothing. Because when Jesus was nailed to the cross, just like Thaddeus, just like Judas, this was the Roman government's way of saying, this is the end, this is nothing. But what do they become for the disciples, for you and me? So we look to John. Now Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And put my finger where the nails were. And put my hand into his side. I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Well, our world would chase us, teach us to chase after beautiful things. Jesus is busy making us into beautiful things as he expands our hearts in joy and love and trust and encourages us to go out into the deep, to trust in him in ways that we could never imagine as he makes us into the beautiful people that are his, the people that he will honor, the people that he will praise, the people that he will rejoice in because of our faith that is of greater worth than gold. Amen.